Turn to John chapter 17, please. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect, truly furnished unto all good works. John 17, we just had a brother stand and read to us a passage of Scripture, 2 Timothy chapter 1, verses 1 through 12, and he said that he had prayed the sinner's prayer 14,000 times. But as you're taught by those that teach that prayer, the the second through the fourteenth thousand doesn't work because the first one was supposed to be good enough. But we all know, most of us have known and learned that it doesn't give assurance of salvation. The way I used to put it when I was a late teenager, having invited Jesus into my heart so many times. Remember, we've already learned this day that you do not invite Jesus into your heart in order to get saved. That invitation of Jesus into your heart is Revelation chapter 3 and verse 20. And that is written to a church of saved people who needed to have fellowship with the Lord Jesus Christ, not salvation. That is a verse that is twisted and abused, and it will be abused 10,000 times today across this country because men don't pay enough attention to the context of the Word of God. We want to do that. But I invited Jesus into my heart every time I got scared that I wasn't saved. But when the Lord began to deal with me and show me the sovereign power of His salvation, I realized why I hadn't had assurance by inviting Jesus into my heart. Because I knew that I was going to be cast into the lake of fire and suffer the second death unless my name was found in the book of life. Revelation chapter 20 verses 11 through 15 about the great white throne judgment of Jesus Christ And the resulting casting into the lake of fire was more than my soul could bear. And I reasoned this way with myself in the Word of God. What have I done that was significant enough to get God to bend over in His throne, open the book, and write my name in it? Because that's the way I had been taught. That it was something I did that got my name in the book of life. And so we would sing the song, there's a new name written down in glory. But the Bible doesn't teach any new names written down in glory. The Bible teaches that our names were written down in glory before the world began. And my name wasn't written in the book of life because I did something. My name was written in the book of life because God did something for me. He chose me to salvation and assigned the Lord Jesus Christ to come and die for me. That's what got my name in the book of life. Then I had assurance. And what I want to say to you right now is that it's not the sinner's prayer that saves. It's the prayer of the Lord Jesus Christ of Nazareth that saves. So we come to John 17, because that's the true Lord's prayer, because that's where our Lord does some praying. And let's start his prayer and see what he said in his prayer. John chapter 17, these words spake Jesus and lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour is come. Glorify thy son that thy Son also may glorify thee. As thou hast given him power over all flesh, 
that he should give eternal life to as many as thou hast given him. And this is life eternal, that they might know thee, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom thou hast sent. I have glorified thee on the earth. I have finished the work which thou gavest me to do. And now, O Father, glorify thou me with thine own self, with the glory which I had with thee before the world was. Amen. Amen and amen. That's the prayer that saves. That's the prayer of the Lord Jesus Christ. And then he went to the cross and he died for us and he said, it is finished. And that is what saves us. And he ever lives. He ever lives to make intercession for us in heaven. And he is able to save to the uttermost them that come unto God by him. Notice that second verse. God gave Jesus Christ power or authority over all flesh. All the sons of Adam were in the hands of the Lord Jesus Christ, and God gave him authority over them all. That's what it says. That's what Jesus prayed. As thou hast given him power over all flesh. This is how God is going to get glory. It was read to us by another brother from Romans chapter 9, that God gets glory in vessels of wrath, And in vessels of mercy. He gets glory in vessels of wrath, men like Pharaoh, by showing his wrath and his power in their lives. He gets glory in vessels of mercy by showing the riches of his grace and his glory in saving those vessels of mercy. And the potter has power to make both from the same lump of clay. And he has done so with our race. We all deserve hell. But by his grace... He saved some Jews and Gentiles out of the Jews and out of the Gentiles to be the vessels of mercy. All flesh was in the power and authority of the Lord Jesus Christ because it had been given to him to have all judgment in the Lord Jesus Christ. The first clause of John 17, 2. The second clause, that he should give eternal life to as many as thou hast given him. There's a lot of giving. In John 17, 2. But there's no offering. There's just a lot of giving. God gave Jesus Christ all authority over all flesh. And Jesus Christ, out of all flesh, was to give eternal life to those that God had given to Him. That's all the giving. There's no offering and there's no receiving on our part. It's God giving, Jesus Christ agreeing to... Keep his assignment and to give eternal life to all those that God the Father had given him. John 17, 2. That's the prayer that saves. We should call that the sinner's prayer. Jesus praying about the sinners that he was going to give eternal life to that God had given to him as part of all the flesh that was under the dominion of the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ will say someday, depart from me. Ye workers of iniquity, I never knew you. That's because he has authority over all flesh. I never knew you. My Father did not give you to me. I've never loved you. I have loved those the Father gave me, and I have saved every one of them, and not one is lost. John 6, 38 and 39 that we read, had read to us earlier today. This is the prayer that saves. I want to remind you that Jesus continues to pray 
if we allow the word of intercession to be used that way for us every day in heaven. Look at Romans chapter 5. This is a point that I've made before. And for those of you that wonder about repetition, repetition is something the Bible commands, Peter illustrates, and we've all learned is the way that we learn. Over and over, hearing the same things, here a little, there a little, precept upon precept, line upon line, is what the Bible says, and that's how we learn. Repetition. You don't have one day when you learn your multiplication tables and then forget about them for the rest of your life. You have to have them drilled into you. And so we come into the house of God to have the precious truths of God's Word drilled into us. So that's what we're doing. Romans chapter 5. For if, this is in verse 10, Romans 5, 10. For if, when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son. Now, if the verse stopped there, we'd be happy. But how would you like to be happier? We could be happy with the first half of the verse. That when we were enemies, God reconciled us to Himself by His Son. We were enemies. We hated God, and God hates the workers of iniquity. If you don't believe that, read Psalm 5.5. The foolish shall not stand in thy sight. Thou hatest all workers of iniquity. The Bible says that. We hated God, and God hated us as sinners. As sinners. Not as His elect children, but as sinners. We were His enemies. In a legal sense. But we were reconciled to God with the death of His Son. But look what it says in the second half of that 10th verse. Does it have the words much more? There's something that we should get, that should get us even happier. Much more, being reconciled, we shall be saved by His life. There is a continual work being done for us that Jesus Christ is alive and living forevermore at the right hand of God, making intercession for us. And here the Apostle Paul, by inspiration, would tell us it's much more than just dying for us. Jesus dying for us reconciled us to God, but much more we shall be saved by His life. Because His life is one of being at the right hand of God forever, reminding His Father for the sake... God doesn't need reminding, you all know that. But for the sake of us... These things are put in this kind of terminology so that we will understand we have a high priest that never dies, never sleeps, never goes on vacation, but is continually interceding for us. If you turn three chapters to Romans chapter 8, you can see it again. Notice that this life of Christ, which is after His death, the life of Jesus in heaven, it was called much more, better, an added benefit of the Lord Jesus Christ as our Savior on top of His death. And the point I'm making is, the prayer that we're saved by is the praying of Jesus, not our praying. It's the praying of Jesus, not the praying of a prayer warrior for you. There's a prayer warrior. He's called the Prince of the Kings of the Earth. It's the Lord Jesus Christ. He never tires praying. The disciples, the greatest men He ever had on earth were the apostles. They were prayer warriors. They slept. But not the Lord Jesus Christ. Three times He woke them and asked them to stay awake with Him and pray, but they couldn't stay awake. Their spirits were willing, but their flesh was weak. But Jesus didn't sleep. 
Last night I listened to Psalm 121 47 times. Don't worry. I, I like repetition. To the tune of Dundee because it's in my blood. And so I listen to that. And you know what it says about God in Psalm 121? The God of Israel neither slumbers nor sleeps. Right. And that's very comforting. From, that's, why, that's why I like Psalm 121. But the Lord Jesus Christ doesn't slumber or sleep either when it comes to praying for us. And we are saved by prayer. We're saved with the prayers of the Lord Jesus. That's the sinner's prayer that counts. Look at Romans chapter 8, verse 34. Who is he that condemneth? Who can condemn one of God's elect? Who is he that condemneth? It is Christ that died. If the verse ended there, could we be happy? It is Christ that died. Meaning that there's no condemnation left. We could be happy. But look what it says. Yea, rather. What were the two words in Romans 5.10? Much more. Romans 8.34, what are the two words? Yea, rather. Oh yeah, here's something better. This is why we're in the house of the Lord. Let's make the Lord Jesus Christ as beautiful as a Savior as we can through His precious Word. Let's lift Him up in our hearts and our minds. It is Christ that died, yea, rather, that is risen again who is even at the right hand of God, who also maketh intercession for us. Jesus is there making intercession. He just didn't die and sit down and forget us. He's interceding for us. Yes, I know that Jesus Christ died, Jesus Christ died once for all. But the Bible wants you to know He is a high priest. And these people who got these epistles, who knew the Jews' religion, they appreciated hearing about a priest that was always interceding for them. Those of us who grew up Baptists and never had a priest, we may not fully appreciate it like we should. But to have a priest that's always interceding is a wonderful thing. His sacrifice was made once for all. But all he has to do is be there at the side of the Father, interceding, that's one of mine. I died for him. We don't, I'm, I'm just, I'm, I'm, we don't know how he does it. But, you know, the Father was well pleased in what Jesus Christ did. And He ever lives to do that for us. And Hebrews 7.25 says the same thing. Just as I've given you here, three times in the Bible, there's something better than His death. And that's the life that He has right now, where He brings His sacrifice and gives it to God and reminds God and intercedes for us on behalf of Himself that I died for this man. I died for this woman. Yea, rather. It's better. Much, it's much more than Him just reconciling us. He intercedes and He prays for us. Thank you, blessed God, that we are saved by the sinner's prayer. The prayer of Jesus Christ for sinners. Right. Not the prayer of sinners for themselves. But the prayer of Jesus Christ for sinners. Amen. As Thou hast given Him power over all flesh, that He should give eternal life to as many as Thou hast given Him. And Jesus did that. Look at Romans chapter 8. You're, so, you're in Romans chapter 8. Let's back up six verses to 28. Romans 8, 28 is a verse that is quoted so many times. And let's think for a few minutes upon the fact that we are saved according to the purpose of God. Hear me. Salvation is by God's purpose. When God has purposed something, the Bible says, who can disannul it? You going to disannul something God purposes? The Bible says purpose. It doesn't say possibility. The Bible says purpose. It doesn't say probability. 
The Bible says purpose. It doesn't say potentiality. The Bible says purpose. It doesn't say offering. It says purpose. Let's read it. These are words that are well known. They're candy to most Christians. But I wish they read the whole verse and latched on to all the words of this verse as much as they do some of the words. Romans 8.28 And we know that all things work together for good to them that love God. Most of them are content with the first two-thirds of the verse. But it's the last third that makes the first two-thirds possible and true. We know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to His purpose. Jesus saves by a purpose. Jesus does not save with a possibility or a probability or a potentiality or an offering. He saves according to a purpose. The purpose of God, them that love God are the called according to His purpose. If a man loves God, It is not because he's a better man than other men. He loves God because he was called according to God's purpose and God changed him so that he loved him. And that purpose of God is described in the next couple of verses. For, that's an explanation, for whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, In addition to that information in verse 29, whom he did predestinate, them he also called. So the called in Romans 8, 28, that are called according to his purpose, is something that follows upon predestination. And predestination follows upon the foreknowledge of God of each one of us. And it's not what we would do, it's that he loved us. It's foreknowledge in the sense of Adam knew Eve. It's foreknowledge in the sense of Jesus saying to the wicked, I never knew you. It's love. It's love. Amen. God looked down upon all men. And what did He find in Psalm 14 and Psalm 58? The Lord looked down from heaven upon the children of men to see if there were any that did understand and seek Him. What did He find? They are all gone out of the way. They are all together become filthy. There is none righteous. No, not one. That's what He found. It's not foreknowledge of what we would do if God saved based on what He foresaw we would do. No one would be saved. It's foreknowledge in the sense of love being set upon us. Ephesians 1 says this, According as He hath chosen us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before Him in love. He chose us in Christ so that He could love us. It is impossible for God to love a sinner in His sins. The only way God can love a sinner is because he's in Christ. It's where he's holy and blameless. We have a holy God. Our holy God cannot love sin or sinners. Our holy God cannot love the devil nor his actions. He hates them both. So where does he... He puts the elect into Christ Jesus where they're holy and without blame. There he can love them. There he's loved us from the foundation of the world because it told us we were chosen in him from the foundation of the world. He's always loved us. Then He predestinated us by setting our destiny beforehand. And then He called us, justified us, and glorified us, which is in verse 30. And it's all according to the purpose of God. And the point I'm making right now is the word purpose. God has a purpose. God doesn't have a possibility. He is not trying. The rest of the world may believe that He is trying to save, but we don't believe that. 
We believe He has a purpose to save, and He will save. He will not be disappointed in heaven that His purpose was thwarted. His purpose was fulfilled. The Bible is filled with it. Verse 31, what shall we then say to these things? Does it sound like a possibility when the Apostle Paul asks, what shall we then say to these things? That it might work, that it might not work? What shall we then say to these things? God has a purpose, and it works from for knowing His elect all the way to them being glorified in heaven. There is a, a linked chain there that cannot be broken. And if you find yourself in any middle link, you know that the links before you are in place, and you know the links after you are in place. Go ahead and give me the big one. Do you know what I mean? We can get assurance. How do you know where you are in that? Can you find a link? Verse 28. We know that all things work together for good to them that love God. What does it say about those that love God? To them who are the called according to His purpose. If you love God, you're called. If you're called, you've got the middle link. If you've got the middle link of verses 29 and 30, then the two links that come before it are yours, and the two links that come after it are yours. Do you love God today? Lord, we love You. We do love You. Show us Your commandments and we'll keep them. And we'll prove our love to You. We'll prove our love to ourselves. Isn't that simple? Do you love God? If you love God, you're in that chain that cannot be broken. That's according to the purpose of God, not the possibility of God. There's no one that He foreknew. There is no one that He predestinated that doesn't get glorified. They're the ones that love God. He's changed our hearts so that we love Him. This is salvation according to purpose. Look at Romans 9 that was read to us. One chapter over. Romans chapter 9. Let's look at the purpose of God. Verse 17. For the scripture saith unto Pharaoh, even for this same... Are you there? It's Romans 9.17. It was just one page over. Romans 9.17. For the scripture saith unto Pharaoh, and it says it in Exodus 9.17... Even for this same purpose have I raised thee up, that I might show my power in thee, and that my name might be declared throughout all the earth. God had a purpose in the life of Pharaoh, and it was a purpose for him to get himself glory upon the destruction of the greatest monarch on earth at that time. This is purpose. Why is that verse pulled up and stuck in Romans chapter 9? Because in Romans chapter 9, we are doing, we are dealing with the children of God. Look at verse 8. They which are the children of the flesh, these are not the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted for the seed. That's another Sunday when I preach to you salvation by promise. God promised eternal life when? Before the world began. But hath in due times manifested his word of promise through the preaching of the gospel. We had a brother thankful that God just didn't make the promise, then fulfill the promise, but he told you about the promise. So we get to rejoice in the promise. Romans 9, 17, there's a purpose. You know, the, the world, the most popular tract that has ever been distributed is the four spiritual laws. 
Law number one, there's four laws, the four spiritual laws. Law number one, they say, God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. God loves his elect and has a wonderful plan for their lives, but that was last Sunday. Do you think, and I know I've said this before, but do you think that there might have been life rings on the side of the ark that had the first spiritual law written in it with a smiley face? Smile. God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life on the side of the ark. How about the shields of the Israelites as they went into battle with the Philistines? Smile. God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life as they took their spear and, and disemboweled a Philistine. What do you think? The four spiritual laws. I've handed those tracts out in my lifetime. God loves his elect and has a wonderful plan for their lives. It's to be his children forever in heaven. But this text tells us God has another plan for other sinners. And if God were simply fair and if God were simply just and if God were only holy, his plan would be judgment and condemnation for all of us. It is because he has mercy, but he wants to display both, that he chooses to save some. The world is foolish and wrong and wicked, and it's a scornful, skeptical, damnable attitude that says, why doesn't he save everyone? The attitude we ought to have is, why does he save anyone? If you were God, you wouldn't. If I were God, I wouldn't. I'd start over and make a new race. Romans 9 tells us the power, the potter has power over the clay in verse 21. Of the same lump of humanity to make one vessel unto honor and another unto dishonor. The potter has power to do that. The potter reaches in, grabs some clay, puts it up and makes something beautiful, a vessel of honor. He pulls up some clay and makes something ugly and throws it against the wall. A vessel of dishonor. A potter can do that. Because the potter is stronger than the clay. The potter is the only one with a will that is active. The clay doesn't have a will of what it's going to be made. Can the clay say, why did you make me thus? No. That's a laughable joke. It's in Isaiah 45. As well as repeated here. Do you know why these illustrations are given to us right here? To give meat and to fill out this statement. I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. And I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. For I wills and your will nor any other man's will is not in there. It's the will of God. I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. The theological conclusion. So then... This is Romans 9.16. The theological conclusion of the four I wills of God. So then, it is not of him that willeth, nor of him that runneth, but of God that showeth mercy. If you ever have mercy in your life, it is by the will of God that he willed to have mercy on you personally. I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. Then he raises up the case of Pharaoh in verse 17. Even for this same purpose have I raised thee up, that I might show my power in thee, and that my name might be declared throughout all the earth. Pharaoh's name is declared throughout all the earth as well. As the idiot that said, Who is the Lord, 
that I should obey Him. Those are famous last words. They're, They're words that ring in my ear like the sailor that said, in Liverpool, even God couldn't sink the Titanic. Uh huh. Yes. We enjoy reading about it from that perspective, though we don't enjoy reading about anyone drowning in water that was so cold it only took two minutes. But those are famous last words that Pharaoh uttered. Who is the Lord that I should obey him? God raised Pharaoh up to the pinnacle of power to dash him in the midst of the Red Sea and to destroy his nation and take their wealth and give it to the Israelites for past wages lost in building the, the cities and tombs of the Pharaohs as they made their way to Canaan. But that stuck in here by the Holy Spirit of God to give us an illustration and an example so that we have verse 18 drawing a conclusion. Therefore, to prove the point of verse 15, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. Then Pharaoh, then this. Therefore, hath he mercy on whom he will have mercy. Because he had mercy on the unbelieving Israelites, and he didn't have mercy on the believing Egyptians. What do I mean by that? When they got to the Red Sea, the Israelites didn't believe they could get through, but Pharaoh believed he could. But God had mercy on the unbelievers, and didn't have mercy on the believers. If you'll consider that for a moment. Therefore hath he mercy on whom he will have mercy, and whom he will, he hardeneth. Because the book of Exodus tells us he hardened the heart of Pharaoh, that he drove his chariot down into the Red Sea. Therefore, that that example was there to teach us about the power of the will of God. And it, it was put so powerfully that the Holy Spirit knew there would be an objection. Thou wilt say then unto me, why doth he yet find fault for who hath resisted his will? If God's will is always accomplished, how can he hold any of us responsible? And Paul didn't respond by saying, oh, wait a minute, you're jumping to conclusions that I didn't intend. He said, no, no. Do not talk about God that way. Do not ask your skeptical questions. Nay, but, O man, who art thou that repliest against God? Why are you questioning what God does with His will? Then he goes into the potter. Hath not the potter power over the clay? Oh, you mean I'm only clay in the hands of God? You got it, reader. You got it. What if God... This is purpose. This is God's purpose. What if God, willing, they want to quote 2 Peter 3.9 to me, that God is not willing that any should perish. This tells me, what if God, willing, to make, willing to show His wrath and to make His power known, endured with much long-suffering the vessels of wrath fitted to destruction. He's still talking about clay. That's why the word vessel is in there. God is willing to judge sinners for their sins and send them to hell just like He does the sinning angels. God is willing. Okay, what about Second Peter 3, 9 where it says God is not willing that any should perish? Well, why don't you read the whole verse to me? Second Peter 3, 9. The Lord is not slack concerning His promise as some men count slackness, but is long-suffering to usward, not willing that any should perish. He doesn't want any of us to perish. 
Who are the us he's talking about in 2 Peter 3? The same ones of chapter 1, the elect of God. The same ones from 1 Peter chapter 1, the elect of God. He's not willing that any of those should perish, but they should all come to repentance. God wants all of His children to repent of their sins and to be obedient children so that He doesn't have to chasten them and judge them. There's a purpose. The Bible all fits together if you study the whole thing and read it. It says usward. What if God, willing, God has a purpose. He is willing. He's made vessels of wrath. And he's made vessels of mercy. What if God willing has vessels that he has made for destruction for their sins? He should have done that to all of us. Right. It is it is your corrupt human nature that ever balks against God and wants to say that doesn't sound fair. Because he's the potter, we are the clay. And listen, we had our chance in the garden. You want a possibility? We had a possibility in the Garden of Eden. We had the possibility of living forever and not having to go to work on Monday mornings. And enjoying paradise with God and a perfect spouse. And you wouldn't have to go shopping at Target for a set of clothes either. There was a lot of good things. Then it says in verse 23, And that he might make known the riches of his glory on the vessels of mercy, which he had afore prepared unto glory. When did he afore prepare us to glory? Before the world began, he chose us in Christ He assigned Christ to die for us, and He prepared a place for us to spend eternity. A four prepared into glory. There's the two vessels of wrath, verse 22. Vessels of mercy, verse 23. Even us, Paul and his audience of believers in Rome, even us, whom He hath called. That's that middle link of the chain in Romans 8, 28 through 30. Even us whom He hath called. Not of the Jews only, but also of the Gentiles. Some Jews are vessels of mercy. Some Gentiles are vessels of mercy. The rest of the Jews are vessels of wrath. The rest of the Gentiles are vessels of wrath, all by the will of God. Therefore hath he mercy on whom he will have mercy. And let's take it all back. What's the purpose here of my words? The purpose of God in salvation. There's more verses. If you go to Ephesians chapter 1, verse 9, verse 11, talks about the purpose that he purposed in Christ Jesus our Lord. You go to chapter 3 and verse 11, the eternal purpose which he purposed in Christ Jesus our Lord. Listen to 2 Timothy 1, 9 that Brother Jerry read. Who hath saved us and called us with an holy calling. Not according to our works, but according to his purpose and grace, his own purpose and grace which was given us in Christ Jesus before the world began. Amen. There We are saved by purpose. Jesus saves by purpose. Jesus saves by prayer. His prayer. Jesus saves by purpose. The purpose of God. Right. There is no missionary purpose that adds to the purpose of God. The missionary purpose is far too late for the purpose of God. The purpose of God is already settled on the number of the elect. That's why Paul said... In 2 Timothy 2.10, in all of his missionary or evangelistic efforts, he said, Therefore, I endure all things for the elect's sake. 2 Timothy 2.10. Because it's all according to the purpose of God. 
And that purpose was given to us in Christ Jesus before the world began. So when you hear Romans 8.28, make sure they always quote the whole thing. And we know that all things work together for good to them that love God. That, that is wonderful. That if you love God, everything is going to work together for your good. Do you know why it works together for your good? Because that proves you're one of His predestinated children, and He's going to take care of you through time and eternity. To them who are the called, according to His purpose. How do we know we're called? Because we love God. If we love God, we're the called. If we're called, then we're in the middle of that five-link chain. We're the called of God. The appointed and ordained by God to eternal life. Which means we were predestinated which means we were foreknown by Him, which means we shall be justified and glorified in heaven. No one can break that chain because it say, He went on to say, What shall we then say to these things of God before us? Who can be against us? Amen. Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? Because salvation is by purpose. It is not possibility. It is not probability. It is not potentiality. It is purpose. And when God is purposed, who can disannul it? May the God of purpose be praised by our preaching. And may the Jesus that came to fulfill the purpose of God be our Savior forever. Our trust is in Him. And may He pray for us this day. As He intercedes at the right hand of the Father, we shall never be lost. He is able to save them to the uttermost, seeing He ever liveth to make intercession for us. In the hour of your greatest fear, you remember... There's someone praying for you, and it's better than your pastor, it's better than your parents, it's better than anyone else. It's the Lord Jesus Christ of Nazareth. And he always, the Father always hears the prayers of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. We can pass through the dark curtain of death knowing that Jesus is praying. I died for that one, my Father. Send the angels. I command them because I'm far above them. Go and bring that soul Swing low, sweet chariot, and carry that soul into heaven. Because it's all according to the purpose of God. May the Lord bless us to fulfill the purpose He's given us, and that's to bring glory to His name by living a life worthy of the purpose that He purposed in Christ Jesus for us before the world began. Let's go out of here with purpose to bring glory to the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and to keep His commandments and to live the life that He's called us to live. Amen. Amen. Amen.